Welcome to Reformed Rakes, a podcast committed to abolition and one that believes there's no glory in punishing. I'm Emma, a law librarian writing about justice and romance at the Substack Restorative Romance. I'm Beth, and I'm on Book Talk under the name Beth Heyman Reads. My name is Chels. I'm the writer of the romance Substack The Loose Cravat, a romance book collector, and a book talker under the username Chels underscore ebooks. A lot of what I write about is how theories of punishment and justice appear in this genre that is so focused on interpersonal relationships. And today we're talking about something central to my current research, Newgate Prison. The site of executions in London after 1783 and a main punitive facility for London for six centuries, Newgate and its punishments were a huge part of the city life from the medieval period until the prison closed in 1902. The prison itself is a representative example of major changes to the Western conceptions of discipline and punishment during the transition from the 18th to the 19th centuries. Along with these social changes, the development of the British novel was happening, stemming from some of the same philosophical underpinnings that led to Enlightenment reforms to incarceration. Newgate has a rich literary history, appearing in the novels of Daniel Defoe and Charles Dickens, and the less canonically accepted subgenre Newgate novels, which peaked in the 1830s pulpy adventure novels that took plots from the lives of the famous Newgate prisoners. The prison appears more prevalently in historical romance than someone might expect if their notions of the genre are limited to the bon ton or country houses. The genre is frequently set in London, particularly in Newgate's most notorious years from about 1783 to about the 1860s, and Newgate has been present basically in the genre since its modern inception in 1972. Newgate as a recurring thematic space becomes a shorthand for terror, grime, and pain. So what's the effect and impact when that is invoked in a romance novel? So the way this episode is going to go, we have some topics about Newgate itself, and we'll discuss a few books under that umbrella topic. So we'll be talking about the historical Newgate and the fictional Newgate in parallel. To start off with, let's talk about the conditions of Newgate. I'm going to have Chels read a quote. Newgate is a dismal prison, a place of calamity, a habitation of misery, a confused chaos, a bottomless pit of violence, a tower of Babel where all speakers and no hearers. There is a mingling of the noble with the ignoble, rich with the poor, wise with the ignorant, and the innocent with the worst malefactors. It is a grave of gentility, the banishment of courtesy, the poison of honor, the center of infamy, the quintessence of disparagement, the confusion of wit. This is from Alexander Smith's A Complete History of the Lives and Robberies of the Most Notorious Highwaymen, an example of a popular style of tome that reported criminals' biographies in the 18th century. An author like Smith, which was most likely a nom de plume, might have a motivation to make Newgate seem more notorious than it was. But these kind of descriptions are pervasive, from biographers to journalists to first-hand accounts. So I'm going to have Beth read a quote from a different source. I was not fixed indeed. Tis impossible to describe the terror of my mind when I was first brought in. And when I looked around upon all the horrors of that dismal place, I looked on myself as lost, and that I had nothing to think of but of going out of the world, and that with the utmost infamy, the hellish noise, the roaring, swearing, and clamor, the stench and nastiness, and all the dreadful crowd of afflicting things that I saw there, joined together to make the place seem an emblem of hell itself, and a kind of entrance into it. This quote is from the 1722 novel Maul Flanders, written by a former Newgate inmate, Daniel Defoe. 
Ma Flanders, the heroine, was born in Newgate to a mother who pleaded the belly. So she escaped execution by being pregnant. And then Ma, as an adult, returns to Newgate as a prisoner. Those are some quotes sort of painting the picture of Newgate. Most people imprisoned in Newgate were there awaiting trial, so not as a sentence unto itself. And I think that's important to remember with these books that we talk about, because a lot of times the authors have some creative license with what's actually happening. Generally, these stays were somewhere between a week and three months, but could last up to 40 years in cases where habeas corpus was suspended, though that was very rare. Other people in Newgate were waiting a procedural element to happen, an appeal, a transportation to America or Australia, the payment of a fine, the fulfillment of a lesser punishment, like a pillory, or the most extreme punishment, a hanging at the Tyburn gallows or a hanging outside the Newgate wall after 1783 when they moved the gallows to the central location of Newgate. Though Newgate was not primarily a debtor's prison, it did hold debtors throughout its history. Debtors also generally stayed longer until they paid off their debts. For our novels, Chels is going to talk about a book they read that is perhaps the most extreme depiction of violence I've seen in Newgate, so trigger warning for violence. Based on my research, the violence in this book seems even more extreme than that was in prisons, for a few reasons we'll discuss afterwards, but for now, Chels. So this is from The King's Brat by Constance Gloyus. It was published in 1972. April 1660. The book begins with Angel Dawson in a prison cart. She's very young, just 16, and an orphan who has been attempting to ingratiate herself with another group of homeless children. They dare her to rob an old man, and she agrees, thinking that he's feeble. He grabs her mid-attempt and hauls her to the authorities. She's then manacled and put into a prison cart. Angel is terrified of Newgate. Both her mother and sister were in prison there before they died, and Angel's sister, Jane, was driven so mad that she was eventually sent to Bedlam. Angel is even more terrified of Bedlam, having visited before and watched the patients be treated like zoo animals for the amusement of gawkers. When Angel arrives at Newgate, she's booked in by Jim Gibbons, a terrifying guard. Jim tries to get Angel to give him money, threatening her and telling her that she'll need to grease his pockets if she wants quote-unquote comfort. Angel has no money, and Jim proceeds to shackle her. The shackles are extremely heavy and tight, limiting Angel's mobility and cutting into her skin. Jim says he'll get her lighter ones if she pays him. When Angel curses at him, Jim tells her that he's going to flog her later, but first he wants her to meet her new cellmates. He leads her down a bunch of dark corridors into the bowels of the prison. Bowels is right, because the stench is overwhelming. Before he shoves her into the women's cell, Jim tells her that she'll have better food and a room of her own if she pays him. He then shoves her in, and Angel notes that there are about 30 women crouched before her. She initially guesses 100. Most of them were naked. Some of them were wearing rags. The women in the cell attack Angel, stripping her of her clothes and searching for valuables. Naked and in excruciating pain, Angel sits on the disgusting floor in despair listening to the women quarrel amongst each other and wondering if it's ever quiet. She notices that most of the women have been flogged, some of them quite recently. Angel has spent a month in Newgate when Charles II returns to England. She can hear the celebration bells ringing from outside the prison. Angel has been flogged since her arrival, but she notes that she's one of the lucky ones. Another young girl, Marianne, gets flogged daily. Marianne used to be lodged in the quote-unquote finer quarters of Newgate, but after she ran out of money, she was sent to the common side where Angel resides. This is a quote from that section. Marianne's voice was soft and cultured, her manner and bearing quietly dignified, 
and perhaps it was these very qualities that had aroused the cruelty of the guards, for her money had not saved her from frequent floggings while living in better quarters. This is where we're introduced to the concept of a flog fight. It's a deadly game where the guards make the prisoners fight each other with whips. One of the guards volunteers Marianne as a combatant for a flog fight, much to everyone's horror. Marianne, who is already fading away, tells Angel to seek out her brother Nicholas after Marianne dies. She doesn't want to be buried in an unmarked mass grave. She wants her brother to take her body. Marianne's would-be opponent is a larger and older woman named Mary. Mary balks at fighting Marianne, since she's so weak, and insists on a new opponent. The guards comply, and Mary ends up fighting a woman named Lucy, who is described as being quite muscular. The fight is brutal, described by Glorious in grotesque detail. Lucy ends up losing both of her eyes in a scene that could give David Cronenberg a run for his money. Mary kills Lucy, and then Mary dies shortly thereafter. Marianne, still sickly, follows suit. Right after this happens, the guards get word from Charles II that all first-time offenders are to be set free in celebration of Charles's homecoming. Once freed, Angel goes to find Marianne's brother, who, to her surprise, is Charles's right-hand man, the Earl of Benbrook. The Earl, who is Angel's love interest, confronts the guards at Newgate over Marianne's death, and Jim Gibbons and six of his conspirators are sentenced to hang. Okay, so this book, obviously very heavy. Um, lots of violence and sort of macabre details are described. There are a few things in here that I think are very representative of history of Newgate. Um, and there's some things that I think are exaggerated based on my research for drama in the book. So one of the things that is very accurate is the uh, the punishment of guards for Newgate. The Newgate guards were not really a professional class. Um, they didn't have the sort of respect that maybe is given to like state employees now, where we sort of think of them as a professional class. They really were sort of often like charlatans and trying to make a quick buck. And so if they took advantage of their position, they would be punished. So that part is, I feel like, is accurate, along with the bribing that had to happen in order to get a better position at Newgate. I do think the flog fights seems like a little overstated for a few reasons, mostly for like lack of space. It seems like it would be hard to conduct a flog fight in Newgate. But does anyone else have reactions to this? these descriptions? Yeah, it's heavy. And I am just curious about Marianne, why she was even in prison in the first place, because I'm like, you're the sister of an earl. Yeah, so Marianne had ended up, um, she was estranged from her brother. Oh, okay. She ended, it was like a series of unfortunate events. She like ran off with another man and it didn't end up working out. Right. And <laughs> things kind of spiraled and she ended up in prison. Yeah, it's it was just kind of a sad situation all around she didn't think that he loved her anymore and so it's actually the earl has like a lot of guilt over the fact that marianne died because i mean if he hadn't treated her a certain way she wouldn't have right she would have been protected yeah i mean because i mean it would have been so easy to get her out like he... i know i'm like you're literally an earl you have <laughs> your sister's wasting away in newgate i was just because the aristocracy, I think, they're immune from certain things. Definitely certain prosecutions, especially women. And also, it's like, Newgate is not, I think this is a hard conception. I think even for me, it was like hard, as I was reading all this Newgate research, it's hard to pick up like the fluidity of Newgate. Right. It's kind of easy to get out of Newgate. Like, if you have money, you can bribe someone really easily. People can come visit you really easily. 
it's just like the it's not people are not kept away as much as the people who are dying in Newgate are people who are sort of like lack a community or lack funds yeah um because people are not going to get them or like extreme cases of violence but sort of like petty thefts small things like that like any sort of non-violent crime you can bribe someone out very simply I guess depending on the, the guards but it seems like the guards in the king's rat would be very easy to bribe <laughs> Um, yeah, so they it's... only ask for it like four times. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other thing that I guess it feels like very accurate that again is like a different conception of Newgate than current prisons is the idea of like uh, executive clemency. So they talk about the um, return of Charles II as sort of this like celebratory clemency. This is true across prisons, I think sort of before the 20th century, is that executive clemency, so like either from a king or a president or a governor, and like granting clemency from the executive branch was much more seen as like a release valve than now where it's like okay. like executive branch like governors or presidents often can only do that at the end of the term because it's like you can't be elected if you want you grant clemency to people or pardon people so that's sort of like release valve for like celebratory reasons or just compassionate reasons happened much more often and you hear reports of people appealing to executive members like the um, the prince regent sometimes comes up as someone the person that they're trying to appeal to for either lowering a sentence so being able to be transported or being released from prison entirely so that that happened that's just one of those things where it's like that's accurate and also is misaligned with sort of our current prison system is this mm-hmm. someone who would have connections like they know the prince somehow or they just are like okay we're letting all the debtors out like, it could be either. So it could be either like long, like a, a large portion where it's like, oh, the, the prison is full. And so like we're going to let out the debtors or we're going to let out first time offenders or like you you have a petition. So it can either be from power or because the sometimes if the the executive member is like an enemy of the, the judge and like the judge is being too harsh. So it's like you can you're like, oh, I'm going to you're going to get the sentence, but I'm going to have this like clemency as like a punishment for the judge so it can really be and it, it just it happened more often and was sort of more seen as like a, a necessary part of the system well now it, it people people don't take advantage of it executive um branch members don't take advantage of it nearly as much as they used to mm. one thing that i do kind of want to say before we move on from this book is that i know that it is quite extreme but i kind of want to defend that aspect of a little of it a little bit because i did read the whole book and the newgate scenes are by far the strongest in the whole thing and it creates like this deep sense of unfairness and just desolation and glorious like puts her foot on the gas pedal for like the whole first third of the book and it is hard to read but I I kind of respect it like yeah and I think that's going to come up with some of the other books that we talk about that it's like Mm -hmm. if given the choice between exaggerating Newgate and like underselling Newgate as far as like the level of violence in there it's like I would prefer someone almost exaggerate it because when they undersell it it becomes kind of disrespectful yeah to the trauma and really, I mean, the, the flog fights, it really seems like just unlikely, mostly because of logistics. Like it, it mm-hmm. seems sort of unwise to give a prisoner a weapon. And Newgate was just much more crowded, I think, than people. It's hard, it's hard to conceptualize like how many people are in this small space. Prisons right now are also very crowded, but just the because they don't have single selling. It's like all these people in like one area. Um, and it just seems like they there's wouldn't be the, based on descriptions I've read. It, I don't know if there would be room to have a flog fight. Because it, it just you, you're not you don't have like room to like have that audience and sort of like looking at people like that. So 
Yeah. Yeah. It seemed very like gladiator type. Yeah. Almost like, which is, right. It is what it is. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that. And I think this will kind of be like a thing we keep saying, but I'd rather people feel the weight of it. So, like the weight of violence and all the trauma and the bribing that went on at Newgate. So, if we want to move on to The Perils of Pleasure by Julianne Long, I think that would provide a good contrast. (laughs) The Perils of Pleasure by Julianne Long takes a very different tone for Newgate's function in the story and the experience of how the prison is described. The hero, Colin Eversee, has been framed for a murder, and at every turn, his privilege that should have been able to help him prove his innocence is foiled, and at the beginning of the book, he is awaiting execution. Madeline Greenway, the heroine, has been hired to help him escape, though she does not know by whom. Really, the only scene that takes place in Newgate is the first one, where Colin is awaiting his execution with another man, a thief called Bad Jack. The thief seems to approach his death with an apathetic attitude. Colin has been in Newgate for a time frame of months, and as he's walking to the scaffold, he's given the instruction, stumble and fall at the fifth guard. He does so, an explosion goes off, and he is whisked away by Madeline. Madeline is able to plan the escape because of the ease of bribing Newgate officials. There's an issue with the meetup where she's supposed to be paid and Colin is supposed to be taken away by whoever paid her to free him. She gets shot instead. They spend the rest of the book unraveling the mystery of Colin's framing and whoever betrayed Madeline. Julianne Long's Newgate does not sound like a walk in the park. Colin smells terrible for most of the book and has lost a considerable amount of weight. His main injury from prison is from shackles that went around his legs that changed his gait and rubbed his ankles raw. Psychologically, his main after effect is a vague rage that most acutely manifests in wanting to hurt people that hurt Madeline. But the tone of the book itself is quite rompy. Madeline and Colin do get into conversations about the capacity for a human to commit violence, Colin worries when he realizes that impulse has been awakened by his stay in Newgate, that even though he did not commit murder, he could have. I enjoy this book as a romance, but I think it is typical of kind of the half-baked way that Newgate can be used in historical romance. Colin's post-prison experience is underdeveloped and referenced obliquely in a few, few ways. He has rage that he's scared of, but always controls. He expresses fear about going to prison once. What he really has to work through is much more like second son trauma because he's worrying that his older brother is actually the one who framed him for most of the book. The most fun parts to read of this book in the context of Newgate were the reports of Colin's notoriety among people that Colin and Madeline meet on their romp. London sings songs about him and his trial and incarceration are reported in broadsheets, expounding on his already rakish reputation and his family's devil-may-care attitude towards society. The novel might not be as grim. I think it does capture this macabre fascination with people who are criminalized that we really start to see during this period of popular access to both literacy and publishing, along with heightened state punishments that are happening in public in a central location. Like the quote we started with at the beginning of the book being from Biographies of Criminals, this is sort of the beginning of true crime. So I've read both The Perils of Pleasure and The King's Brat, and they have almost nothing in common except for Newgate. They vary wildly in tone. Uh, One is restoration, one is regency, one is grotesque, and one is, like you said, a romp. But the conditions of Newgate itself were abysmal in both settings. Uh, Emma is right that Colin seems to have escaped from Newgate largely unscathed. Much more time in the book is Colin grappling with his feelings about the woman that he thinks he loves. 
I feel like Long gave a lot of the heft of the big feelings to Madeline, his love interest, who has a really sad backstory of her own. So she's fairly inscrutable. She feels like a question mark throughout a lot of the book, while Colin is not just an open book, but has kind of reached legendary status. Uh, So yeah, in The King's Brat, Angel is subjected to a host of violence during her month at Newgate, witnessing depravity and torture, and then being abused herself in return. So one thing I didn't mention is that she actually barely escapes. The guard, Jim Gibbons, tries to hold her after it's announced that first offenders can go. So she has to bribe him to let her out, saying that she'll get money from Marianne's family and return to pay him off. Her fear at being sent back to Newgate is palpable in those moments. She's terrified that she'll do almost anything not to get sent back. So part of the Earl's, uh, her love interest, self-imposed penance for his estrangement with a sister, which he sees as the indirect cause of her death, is to teach Angel how to be a proper lady. They're not lovers for a while, but they have a fraught teacher-slash-student role, and although they both have a hatred and fascination with each other. There's one scene that's very, very bodice ripper, where during a heated argument, the Earl takes a riding crop and moves to hit Angel with it. He accidentally hits her in the face, and this is very traumatic for Angel, not just because it's obviously painful and horrifying, but because it has echoes of the Newgate torture, the frequent floggings. Even in less fraught and distressing moments, Angel is left to deal with the fear and the pain that the idea of Newgate instills in her. Yeah, I didn't realize this until uh, you were talking about the other elements, especially with the Angel or Angel and um, the writing crop. But it seems like the reaction to Newgate across romance novels, and I'm not going to say this all the time because I haven't read all of them, but it seems to be really gendered. Like women are afraid of prison and men get angrier in prison. Like so many of the heroes who've been incarcerated in all the books that we're talking about today, the thing that they're scared of is something that like Newgate awakens in them. And it's like, it seems like the treatment of uh, Newgate prisoners was different and the women had different privileges and, but it was not great for anybody and people were not just men were not the only ones who became, or women were not the only ones who were becoming scared um, or scared of their lives. Like there, there was trauma being instilled beyond just violence, like awakening within a male character. Yeah, like that's that's such a good point because I'm both books that I have kind of the reference for are women are usually the ones who kind of have this this type of reaction. But yeah, as not read every Newgate novel, but um, the ones that we're kind of talking about, there's there's almost like, I don't want to say character building, but that's kind of what it seems like almost. Mm-hmm. I'm not a fan of trauma as character building. We should just no. get that. <laughs> oh, not, that's not what I thought you were saying, but I, like when it shows up in books, I'm like, this isn't character building uh, stuff that's going on right now. Obviously, there's feelings you have to deal with afterwards, but, like, are you a better person for it? I I don't know. I don't yeah, think so. Yeah, and there's some of that where it's, like, you're dealing with this, like, sort of, like, fiction that, like, what, when you're, I think when you write about Newgate in, like, 1972 or later, mm-hmm. you have to kind of be writing about incarceration at that time because the idea that, like, your person, your hero or your heroine is leaving Newgate and has to deal with the trauma of Newgate is this kind of like falsity and so anything to do with incarceration you really sort of are taking this approach where you're talking about what's it like to be incarcerated now in a way at least because most people who go to Newgate are not leaving Newgate 
or not leaving Newgate to go on and live a life. They are either being transported or they are going to be executed at the gallows. So obviously these books sort of take two different approaches to depicting Newgate, but I do think they sort of ground Newgate in a very specific reality. And so now we're going to talk about something that is not grounded in reality, but is a fiction that comes up in historical romance pretty frequently, I think. So we're going to talk about two books that involve a Newgate marriage or a marriage at the gallows. So this is a plot where someone, usually a heroine, and a heroine in both of our examples today, marries an already condemned man for some usually procedural reason. The marriage will allow her to inherit, the marriage will allow him to inherit, and then his assets will go to her. She will take care of him during his stint in Newgate and, and make sure that he has privileges while he's there. The historical basis for this process seems pretty scant. Fleet prison marriages were definitely a thing, but not even necessarily between incarcerated people and non-incarcerated people. Fleet prison was also a notorious prison, though mainly for debtors and those held in contempt of court in the Court of Chancery. Through a legal loophole, fleet marriages did not require the bans to be read. So before the Marriage Act of 1753, it was easier to get married at a prison than a church. The Marriage Act disallowed these quickie marriages, leading to the marriage tourism in Gretna Green that we all know and love. Fleet would be burned down in 1780 in a riot that also destroyed Newgate, but Newgate would be rebuilt and reopened in 1783. There were definitely frequent conjugal visitors to Newgate Prison over its history. Similarly, there's evidence of relationships and marriages between male and female prisoners. It can be hard to tell the level of consent going on here because of where we get the documentation, so I'm going to be careful in how I describe it. But the prison's boundaries were much more fluid than how we conceive a prison now. Visitors could enter and even families could be moved in with the prisoner, especially if they could pay for some fee for accommodations. So the first book um, is a book that I read that's sort of a staple of the genre because it's by Kathleen E. Woodowis. It's Shauna from 1977. And this is the earliest example I found of a Married at the Gallows plot in a romance novel. Though there are references to it in the mystery book, The Bride of Newgate by John Dixon Carr from 1950. And I've also seen political cartoons satirizing Newgate marriages from the early 1900s, which after the prison actually closed. In Shauna, the titular heroine is a very spoiled heiress whose father works in the Caribbean. He has sent her to London with one instruction, marry someone worthy of you or I will pick your husband. Shauna can't get excited about any of her suitors, either, either finding them boring or gold digging. She comes up with a plan, marry a man on death row. There is a man on death row right now who could ha has an easy to pass for aristocratic name, Rurik Beauchamp, though he's actually a colonial himself. She offers to help make his final days more comfortable in exchange for marriage, but paying for privileges within Newgate. Rurik wants something else, a real wedding night. After the wedding, when Rurik attempts to romance Shauna, she is confused by both his earnest attention and her feelings for him, but she double crosses him and returns him to prison before they can consummate the marriage. Shauna means to return to the Caribbean a widow. She lies to her father about her how her husband died, a carriage accident, but Rurik has actually been transported, not executed, under mysterious circumstances, later revealed to be a plot by an, an agent of Shauna's father. Under the name John Rurik, he begins working for Shauna's father and pursuing her, blackmailing her to reveal her scheme and fraud to her father, all while demanding she makes good on her wedding night promise. The book is sprawling and flowerly in a very widowist way. Even as an occasional reader of Bodice Rippers, I don't relish Woodowiss's characters, but the book is important as establishing this almost always ahistorical plot as a convention in romance. Beth is going to tell us about a more recent book that takes this up as well. Okay, so this is My One and Only Duke by Grace Burroughs. So... Quinn's condemned to death for murder. He's a banker and rich, so he can buy privileges at Newgate. He befriends a few people, including a child pickpocket. 
his sister sends him better food, although he hangs it in a bag on the rafters so that rats don't get it. He meets Jane when her father does his visits with prisoners, and she needs a place to hang out. Jane's a widow, and pregnant, and without funds. Her father didn't approve of her marriage, so he introduces her by her maiden name. She doesn't contradict him, so he doesn't look like a liar, and to ensure he won't throw her out of their house. So to the public, she looks a bit like a fallen woman, and she won't have access to a widow's portion for another year. Quinn takes pity on her, and they marry so he can ensure money will stay with her and not go to her father. All the while in the background, this dude's trying to find Quinn because it turns out he's inherited a dukedom. I cannot stress the jump in class here. He started off as a footman, worked his way up into being a banker, and then he becomes a duke. Anyway, one reason they want him to inherit is so he can pay off the massive debts that are tied to the estate. He makes it all the way to the hanging, and they have to cut him down. Quinn had paid a thousand pounds to have a private hanging. When he leaves Newgate, he takes the child pickpocket and three sex workers with him who he had befriended to be hired as a footman and chambermaids. Quinn is innocent of the murder he's in Newgate for. A villain had conspired for him to go to Newgate and manages it through corrupt guards and legal people. So both of these involve a marriage of the gallows, which is not particularly realistic, but there are other elements that sort of heighten the drama even more. I think in Shauna, the thing that is that is seems unrealistic is why she even is motivated to go to a prison, while the thing that is unrealistic in My One and Only Duke is the the jump in, um, in rank that is going on sort of behind the scenes mm-hmm. with Quinn. But I guess it's like, why... Why do you, And I don't have an answer to this. Why do you think that this is like a compelling plot? Because I think it's one of those things that when I read it, I'm like, this is a little goofy. Um, and I can suspend my, delief, but my disbelief pretty well when reading historical romance. But it's one of those things that sort of signals automatically to me, like, this person is not taking the concept of Newgate particularly seriously. I wonder if it's just people look at it like, oh, marriage of convenience. Like, it's another way to get two people together as opposed to like an aristocratic match or something like that. But you're right, in the end, you end up kind of having Newgate as just like your setting as opposed to having any impact on the characters. And I would say in this book that I read, Quinn, I think he was only there for a month because like we've been saying, it's just you go there to wait (laughs) till you either are hanged or you are transported elsewhere. So I think just the one thing that stood out to me with this book is, yeah, his he was rich, so he was able to pay for some privileges, but it's still not like great a great place to be. <laughs> and the same thing happened for him. You guys were talking earlier about like men being angry, and it's kind of like this gendered thing that uh, of the books we've read so far. And he's kind of angry too, but I guess it's also more about like the plot that's happening, like who sent him to Newgate because he's actually innocent of the murder he's condemned for. It ends up being this whole <laughs> this whole thing. Uh, or someone kind of villainous got him got him there. Yeah, I feel like that maybe Grace Burroughs had read Shauna because it's widowist, and so mm-hmm. I think maybe this is like the update of like, oh, like what happens when he's a duke instead of like a colonial? Because the whole thing with Beauchamp is that he has like a fancy name, but he's actually from the colonies, and mm-hmm. so Shauna's like, she's like really mean to him the whole time. She's oh, like, no. you're disgusting, not only because you were in Newgate, but because you're a colonial. It's like, you live in the Caribbean, Shauna. Like... <laughs> Right. Um, what about like her ability to make me like so annoyed with a woman is unparalleled because her heroines are just kind of mean and bratty. <laughs> like, and it's like as the man is like 
it's like a bodice ripper, so the man is violent. But I'm like, you're really don't be 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 mean to him, but you could be like a little do some self reflection. What it was heroines, I don't know. Right. <laughs> I haven't read Shauna, but I know that Shauna is like infamously obnoxious because she's actually referenced in this like Laura Kinsale essay <laughs> called The Androgynous Reader, where she's like making an example out of Shauna. Oh goodness. <laughs> so that's kind of my context for for that. Um one like thought that I kind of had when you were kind of talking about or like asking why that something kind of like so unserious like with the the marriage at the gallows happens frequently is like I don't have an answer for that really but like I was kind of thinking of like you know Newgate we know Newgate but like we also kind of we also uh, get bedlam references Mm -hmm. all the time Mm -hmm. and those tend to be much less flippant Mm -hmm. and I and I wonder if that's some some it has something to do with maybe a comment that you had when we were discussing this earlier about how people don't really conceptualize Newgate outside of like our modern understandings of what prison is. Yeah. And so I, I wrote about this when I was first doing Newgate because I was kind of wondering like when I was thinking about my research, I was like, how much do I want to expand this? Do I want to look at Bedlam and Newgate, which I sort of see as parallel and how they're brought up. But I think one thing that's interesting is that Bedlam, I think, has a much bigger cultural footprint as like an idiom and like we talk about like we call things bedlam after bedlam but it's like newgate really only exists I, I think most people if they know of what it is maybe know about it from novels um rather than like we're not talking about like newgate's not part of our like our our sort of conversational talking all the time i think we still think of like like a mental asylum i think maybe we think of it as like oh like this is not a good place like if something is an asylum opposed to like a hospital it's mm-hmm. bad well, it's like prison, I think people on different sort of political spectrum write novels that are set in Newgate and have different opinions about like whether prison is all the way bad or like something that was like a, a necessary evil or like actually a public good. And okay. so I think that may be part of it as well, that it's like we tend to think of asylums as always cruel, always always outdated ways of dealing with mental health, but we don't actually have that response to prisons in the same way. Yeah. So to kind of transition to reformers at the end of um, the book, Burroughs discusses Newgate and how it was a terrible place. Then she connects this, and this is quoting her, oddly enough, there is a significant tradition connecting prison reform and banking families. In 1813, Elizabeth Gurney Fry, daughter of a prominent Quaker family connected to both Gurney's Bank and Barclays Bank, visited Newgate. Uh, (laughs) I don't know why uh, we've talked about this before why she's connecting it as like a banking thing like Quinn is a banker but like I would assume because the Quakers were famous reformers uh. yeah. yeah that seems more of a like connection than yeah it's like bankers love freedom yeah that's I would not I would never in a million years be like oh yeah the bankers <laughs> definitely big on prison abolition or right. it's like Quakers were bankers and Quakers were prison reformers from like two different like thought processes yes <laughs> Um, yeah, the Quakers were really involved in prison reform, especially in the United States. But they're sort of credited with the idea of like single selling, which is not a thing in uh, Newgate mm-hmm. um, because of the way that Newgate is built, this medieval building. Everyone is together in like in different rooms. They sleep together. You can get a single cell or a roommate if you pay for it. But the idea of single selling and sort of solitary reflection comes from the Quakers. And those were starting to be built in, in England in like the 1830s through the 1850s. 
And sometimes people point to those buildings as like examples of the panopticon, which is an English concept from Jeremy Bentham. But a panopticon in England was like notoriously never actually built. What they did instead was single selling so that people are not, their behavior is not being controlled by being witnessed, but by being like isolated, that you can't harm another prisoner. You can't, it's harder to harm yourself if you, you're in a controlled single space. Um, so that comes from the Quakers. Um, and did they advocate for separation by gender as well? Was that then? Yeah, so that was that was a big uh, Elizabeth Gurdy Fry thing because mm-hmm. this was an issue in Newgate. Less so that I think they always wanted the genders to be separated, but the women, I guess, the scale of like which women were and how many women were in prison at a time grew in sort of the 1780s, and women had to walk through the men's section to mm-hmm. go to the privy, and this was something that Fry really took issue with. It was like we should have they should have their own privy. They should be able to go to the bathroom without like walking through. Um, the men's section and so keeping them separate and then eventually having like separate institutions completely where like there were there was a men's prison and a women's prison come, came about with with Fry's reforms mm-hmm. so I guess the other big reformer I guess to, to think about is um, John Howard who was not Quaker but was deeply religious and he sort of starts the question in the 1770s of like what do we do about prison and that's sort of what Newgate is a part of with this transition from the 18th to 19th centuries John Howard basically commits like a survey of all the prisons in England. It's like, who's there? Why are they there? How many of them are felons? How many of them are debtors? And this is the first time that people, a lot of people are like aware of like the conditions of prison. So more people become reformers after John Howard publishes the survey. And at the time, it seems like it can kind of go a few different ways because uh, basically in 1776, the famously, (laughs) the United (laughs) States breaks off from England and no longer is the place to transport. So there are about 14 years between 1776 and 1790 where they don't know what they're doing with prisons. And it's before the establishment of Botany Bay in Australia, which became the other big transportation place. So that's where you see a lot of the sort of philosophical reforms. And then those get implemented in the early 19th century because people got so upset about these surveys and the information that was coming out about prison. That's that's good. <laughs> uh, so I feel often after your points, I'm like, yeah, that was very smart, Emma. <laughs> okay, so we'll transition then. So all the books we've talked about so far involve people being exonerated for the crimes they're accused of. But we think it's important in the context of abolition politics to also consider how stories are told where someone is definitely guilty of what they are accused so Chels can take it from here with another book that they read. This is The Prince of Eden by Marilyn Harris. And I guess before I get started, a little bit of a backstory on The Prince of Eden. So this is the second book in the, the Eden series by Marilyn Harris, and it was published in the 70s. And the first book, This Other Eden, is a bodice ripper. The second book is more of a family saga, but it was kind of back when there wasn't like that as much of a strict genre fiction lines as there are now. So we wouldn't consider this genre fiction romance today, mm-hmm. but it does kind of fall under the um, romance family, romance umbrella. It was published by Avon. Right. Anyways, The Prince of Eden by Marilyn Harris uh, starts in May 1836. The book begins with the head turnkey of Newgate standing high on the catwalk, looking into the pit of common cell where there's a commotion. There's an accelerating tension that the turnkeys are not able to place, but they note that it's unusually quieter at this time of day. The prisoners are waiting for something, jostling each other. Joster, the head turnkey, asks a new employee, who's a very young man, where the new lady is. He thinks to himself, seldom did they get knobs like her in the common cell. 
Joster knew her case well enough, as did everyone in London who could read or had ears to hear. She was Charlotte Longford, the young wife of a rich linen merchant in Oxford Street, who had been charged by her husband with, with adultery. So she had been brought to Newgate that same day after a magistrate used her to set an example for the upstart middle class, quote, resurrecting an ancient form of punishment for adultery, sentencing her to be burned on the palm of her hand with a hot poker in public court, but only after she spends a week in the common cell of Newgate. So some, some context that Harris gives us here is the quote, knowing full well that if she survived the latter crucible, the former would be nothing in comparison. So once Charlotte was brought into Newgate, she collapsed, appearing lifeless. While he's musing, Joster notices the crowd and common cell start to chant. He's coming. He's coming. The guards grow increasingly fearful in the commotion until it's revealed that they are heralding the arrival of Edward Eden, known to them as the Prince of Eden. Edward Eden is the bastard son of an earl, who's Thomas Eden from the first book in the series, This Other Eden, who deliberately lets himself be arrested in order to bring gifts to the inmates and guards alike. One is a kindness, one is a bribery. Eden is Charlotte's lover, so he's arrived with a mission this time, bribing Joster to help get Charlotte out of Newgate. After Eden issues the bribe, he goes to see his lawyer, where it's revealed that Edward wanted to defend Charlotte in court, but his lawyer discouraged him from doing so. The lawyer seems to think that Charlotte got her just desserts, that the reason that she was condemned and not Edward was to discourage social climbing. The lawyer tells Edward that humiliation was the goal and that, quote, the young lady was brazenly playing the game of the aristocracy. No Tory in his right mind could permit it. Edward then learns of the death of a family friend and an acquaintance offers him opium while he's grieving. Edward agrees to try it, losing four days of his life. Eventually, he's discovered in a dilapidated house with other people who are abusing drugs. Edward is brought home and helped to get sober, and he returns his efforts back to saving Charlotte. But at that point, it's too late. Charlotte was accosted by two men in the prison who viciously attack and rape her. When Edward shows up, he demands to see Charlotte, but is led to her body instead. In his anger at seeing Charlotte like this, Edward attacks and tries to kill the guard. They attempt to arrest Edward, but he's much luckier than Charlotte. Because of his familial connections, he's sprung from Newgate, his only punishment being that he must leave London and return to his ancestral home. I think the idea of like dealing with guilt, both for like crimes and bad acts, is something that I try to separate out in these novels as I'm reading them, because so often the crime is not the worst thing that someone did, and it's often not the reason that someone should be feeling guilt. It's like that the, the system is telling you that this is the the crime, and I also try to be careful with like describing that in like my real life, like not describing even like a person as criminal, like an act is criminal, a person is not criminal, mm -hmm. and being careful with language around that. Mm -hmm. But I think this book, the way that Chell's described it, seems like this becomes a theme of the book in ways that other books that we've talked about don't necessarily do. Where it's like what what we take from Newgate are these themes of guilt, where Charlotte has no reason really to be guilty but she's being punished and then eden or um edward is not should feel guilty he's he's done these bad acts that harm people and is keeps getting off scot-free and so he's like processing that the that guilt and as like a separate thing from the justice that comes down from a crime i think another interesting 
point that I think Chelsea will bring up, but was also in my book that I read, was like the rise of the middle class and kind of the backlash to that, which I find very interesting in a prison context. I don't know. I got no good thoughts to connect here, but I'm just going to throw that out there for you guys to catch. (laughs) Yeah, so the cool thing about the Prince of Eden is that Marilyn Harris kind of makes this connection for you. When Charlotte is arrested and Edward is speaking with his solicitor, his solicitor says that the middle classes will rise and the peers will have no objection to it. He says, in fact, most good Tories are only too willing to make room for them. Make room, he repeats pointedly. The aristocracy will make room. They will not absorb them. The difference is subtle and very important. So the middle class is allowed to get something of a leg up, but they can't be too ambitious lest they displace the peers. You see this later when Edward gets involved in the Chartist movement, which is a working class movement that had six tenants all around improving the lives of working class people, including universal male suffrage, secret ballots, paying MPs, abolishing the property qualification for being a member of parliament, yearly parliamentary elections, and then equal size constituencies. So the overarching goal is to get more working people involved in politics so that they can improve their own lot. So there are two chanting scenes in The Prince of Eden that mirror each other. The first, he's coming, he's coming, around Edward's arrival at Newgate, and the latter is led by the Chartists after a speech is given by the Tollpuddle Martyrs, which is a group of agricultural laborers who were unjustly transported to a prison colony for the offense of administering unlawful oaths to members of their union. So after the martyrs' speech, the Chartists chant, Who owns England? And the answer to that chant haunts Edward, who you'll remember didn't have to spend any time in Newgate for his own criminal act thanks to his proximity to power. Who owns England, they chant, and the answer is the aristocracy. Everything is centered around the aristocracy's tight grip on control, the cruel system that casually discards human life and prevents upward mobility. They keep everyone in their place through political and judicial power. Yeah, in the context of the middle class, it's interesting reading like these histories of Newgate reforms from like the 1770s into like the 1830s. Because during all this time when like enlightenment philosophers are sort of arguing of like, what does it mean for the state to punish someone? Like that's the whole idea is like the social contract of the state. Like what, when does the state have the right to punish someone? Um, and the idea is that they, they have the right to punish someone when it serves as a general deterrent. And that's the idea that comes out is that punishment should not be harsh, it should be consistent. So it's like, if you steal a loaf of bread, you shouldn't be killed. But every time you steal a loaf of bread, you should be punished. And that's coming from Beccaria, an Italian philosopher. But all of this idea is that these are coming out and London's becoming this metropolitan city and the middle class is growing. And there's this anxiety about like the crowding of London. And it's like, what do you do when you think they're a crowd? You implement more social control. None of these reformers really seem to be thinking about like, why is someone needing to steal a loaf of bread? <laughs> like that, that is not a thing that is happening. On the, on the, uh, in the discussions that are happening when prisons are actually changing, which is in this like turn of the 18th century. That comes up more in the 1830s with like Charles Dickens really focusing on children and sort of like this uh, empathy for lower classes who are, um, who are suffering and like suffering specifically in London. But at that point, 
the way that parliament has shifted how they talk about prisons, they're already building more prisons. They're already building the single cells. They're already invested in incarceration in a way that's like becoming more and more modern. So it's like the social reform doesn't line up for this like one moment in time when England was prepared to sort of switch how they're thinking about prison. And they're, they, it's just they're the total disconnect of like, what's going on in our world right now of like, why is there more crime? They really think it's a moral issue, which is not that different than how we talk about crime now, where it's like people, it's like, what's going to prevent them from committing a crime? What's going to reform them? Uh, what's going to rehabilitate them? It's like, well, what are they really being rehabilitated from if, especially for nonviolent crimes, but even violent crimes, what, what drives someone to violence? What drives someone to commit an act that you think of as unthinkable? It's usually circumstance in some way. What are those the, those circumstances? Or at least a, a circumstances are going to have an effect on it. We could talk a lot about actually what you just said. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I think we should transition. And I liked what you said about like what drives someone to violence. So The High Women by Kerrigan Byrne is very popular. And Emma's <laughs> origin story for this, <laughs> this episode yeah, so The High Women by Kerrigan Murd is what inspired this research. This is probably the most popular book from recent years that features a Newgate plot, or a really substantial Newgate plot. Duke and Mackenzie and Farah are both orphans who forge a friendship in the Scottish Highlands. Farah is a ward of someone who pays for her better treatment at an orphanage, so she aids Dugan and they fall in love and do a hand-fasting ceremony. He is 11 and she is 8. Prompted, This is prompted by Farah's revelation that she's supposed to marry her father's lawyer, her benefactor. A, a priest at the orphanage attempts to assault Vera, and Dugan kills him in a rage and is sent to prison. Flash forward. Her entire life, Farah has considered herself a widow, living as Farah Mackenzie. She works as a sort of secretary for Scotland Yard and meets Dorian Blackwell, noted London crime lord. A few days later, Dorian kidnaps her and takes her to Scotland, explaining that she's in danger, and actually he kidnapped her for her own protection. Dorian was imprisoned with Dugan and reports to Farah that Dugan's affectionate stories of her were a light for all the prisoners in Newgate. In Scotland, she meets a group of former Newgate prisoners who make up Dorian's team of criminals. Dorian had been sentenced to seven years for petty theft also as a child. He tells Farah, seven years of hard labor for petty theft because of prior indiscretions. He also reveals that Dugan died in prison, beaten to death by three guards. She had believed that he died of consumption. Now, in order to actually talk about the big Newgate scene here, I have to do a spoiler for the crux of the book, though I do think it is a pretty intuitive plot point that you may have even guessed at this point. (laughs) Dugan and Dorian are actually the same person. Dorian did die in prison, and Dugan suffered so much trauma under his identity that he basically don-drapered himself and took up Dorian's name as an adult, partially so that he could leave Newgate earlier, because um, Dorian was convicted of petty theft while Dugan was convicted of murder. Dugan reveals, so he's still living as Dugan, Um, so Dugan, now Dorian, which is what Farah continues to call him, reveals to Farah after this revelation the extent of his trauma from Newgate. He was the smallest boy in prison and was abused sexually, physically, and mentally. During the entirety of their relationship, Dorian has struggled to touch Farah, wearing gloves and restraining her hands so she cannot touch him. So here's some quotes from the book about Dorian's um, sort of conception. He says, to say it was a nightmare would be kind. The brutality was all-encompassing, sexual, physical, mental. He lifted his eyes to her, covering the flicker of shame behind those familiar walls of ice. Can't you see how it changed me, Farah? Not only physically, but essentially. Farah then expresses sympathy for him as a victim of circumstance as a child and is in awe of his strength as a man. You were young. You were small and helpless. She inched towards the edge of the bed. You're none of those things anymore. 
Dorian struggles to make her understand that once he was grown enough, he enacted revenge on everyone, paying all the abuses back in kind. But Farah insists that he is a special circumstance, telling him, you survived when others didn't. You had no other means with which to keep yourself alive. In order to stop the persecution, you had to become a man with a black heart. I don't sanction violence, but neither can I condemn you for that past, especially when it was my fault you were there in the first place. This is the book that really inspired me to write about Newgate um, because of this scene. This book is really beloved. It has a 4.1 rating on Goodreads, but I struggled with the romance and the plot. Neither of them are really to my taste, but this scene where Farrah is able to achieve this cognitive dissonance for her lover and to some extent his friends of understanding why they were driven to violence and that they were there for excusable circumstances. But in the same conversation, she describes criminals preying on each other and using this sort of violent animalistic language. There's this sense that Dorian is the exception to the rule about who gets sympathy for bad acts. So th there's so many details of the prison here that are ahistorical. So to me, Byrne is really calling upon Newgate as an archetype of a prison. While there are other books that I feel like upped the romp factor for plot purposes, tempering Newgate's terror, this book continues Newgate's horrors, but makes them less specific. So many of these details are really just general prison descriptors, including the length of sentence, which would be atypical for Newgate, um, and sort of having these like particularly American notions. So the long sentencing, the idea of parole comes up, which is really associated with British colonies in the United States and its inception, and the idea of productive hard labor. The, um, uh, the ex-Newgate uh, incarcerees talk about being sentenced to work on the London Underground, which is not really what hard labor was like in Newgate. So I feel like this book has this opportunity to extend sympathy for these sort of circumstances of even really violent acts. But Dorian and Farrah sort of fail to see that this is a system, uh, systemic thing rather than just a Dorian thing. And this is, was just the most frustrating scene for me to read because I just wanted to like tip them over the edge of like empathy and like it's the system fault. That, it's the system's fault. That's why Dorian was experiencing this violence. And why it's so sad. It's like these people who were hurting him in prison too were also incarcerated and right. experiencing the same trauma that he is going through. And so this is what inspired me to look at why Newgate is used in these romance novels because I felt like Byrne was sort of having her cake and eating it too of getting to invoke Newgate sort of ahistorically and really ended, ended up writing a pretty conservative notion about what prison is like really in the United States rather than uh, Victorian England. Right. Um Again, always at the end of your point, I'm like, that's good job. Amen. <laughs> uh, it's the plot point of like Dugan and, and Dorian. I remember watching a TikTok and someone was like trying to conceal the fact that and like while watching this, I had not read the book yet. I'm like, so it's that guy that right. was supposed to die. Also, I like that you mentioned that the romance itself is not much of a sell, sell because yeah. like, like we've talked about, Historical accuracy, I wonder if she could even gotten away with it if she had addressed this as like a system failing. Does that make sense? Where like that one conversation had been changed. Mm -hmm. So he's not, it's like, you're not special. He's like everyone else that went to Newgate. Right. Even if it was like, you're not special, like this happens to lots of people yeah. and like we can all, we can like move on from it together. Like, and especially because he's surrounded, it's interesting to me that the, so Dorian's crime or Dorian, nay Dugan mm -hmm. um, crime is the only one that's really violent of like the, the band of criminals. Mm -hmm. Like they all have like very sympathetic crimes. Like one of them, which again, very ahistorical is um, he, he fell in love with a man and he like, he tells people this like immediately. And it's like, why are you like outing yourself? You were incarcerated. <laughs> 
for homosexuality, it seems a little foolish to like just be telling people that you meet like why you went to prison. But it's it's these crimes where you're like, oh, this is this is an unjust punishment very easily, like for a petty theft or um, for falling in love with a man. And it, it, it very it seems like she was inspired by Oscar Wilde because the the man's father like sort of turns it into a big big to do. So it's like it doesn't even extend to the other characters where it's like, oh, she learns to have sympathy for these people uh, who are victims of circumstance of like what's violent. It's like the violence is very like locally focused on this one character who we have this like very sympathetic explanation for. Right. Which it's like, yeah, I, I think I think violence is one of those things with abolition. You have to sort of think about like it, it's a hard like mental exercise to go through, but I think it's important to think about like what do we do with people who've done really bad things and how do we reintegrate them into society if that's a goal that you have and it's interesting in romance people in romance do violent things all the time <laughs> i know <laughs> it's a whole whole genre many subgenres actually just focused on violence in romance and coming back for them and coming back to a happily ever after mm-hmm. but these newgate stories tend to focus on like making that an exception rather than a rule or having people actually that if if we are condemning the system, it's because the person actually didn't do anything that we want to be condemned. And it's like this sort of distance thing where it's like, oh, in England in the 1700s, they put people in prison for petty theft. And that's like not something we need to worry about anymore. And it's like, that's not true. Right. <laughs> so I feel like Byrne has kind of a... I don't want to say libertarian because that doesn't quite work. But like, so Farah is, Farah is a cop. Like Farah works for yes. cops. Like, and um, and so there's kind of like in, and I've read, not every book in the series, but I've read quite a few. So there's kind of this recurring theme of like extra ju- judicial justice, but it's kind of the system is still the system and the system is still like ostensibly a force for good. So like both of those things exist in the books at the same time. So you kind of have like this like libertarianism, like Batman type figures who are doing basically bad things, Mm -hmm. but like their reasons are okay. It's okay for them. Mm -hmm. They're like billionaire types. They're like extremely influential. But and but you have that like coexisting with the world of cops and the cop characters. Yeah. And it's kind of this weird political mesh that it's exciting. I think she wants the excitement of crime, but like cannot come to a place <laughs> where like she feels like she can fully endorse it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's just something that I've kind of noticed is that her books are kind of like uh, I I couldn't I had trouble putting together her books beliefs about incarceration from kind of like the mishmash of everything yeah it's something that is accurate about this like when it's set so it's set a little bit i think it may be the latest one of settings and so it's like 1855 and that is like post professionalization of police so like pharaoh works at scotland yard and it's like there's this professional class of investigators who are patrolling and like investigating crimes and that's a new thing and that's one of those reforms that happens in the 19th century that really changes the relationship with prison. Partially because um, before there was sort of professional cops in England, the Metropolitan Police, which is it's interesting why it took them so long to have a professional police. France had one much earlier and there's like literally documents from parliament that like, we can't do that. That's like too French. Um, <laughs> it would like be embarrassing for us to like the have professional crime. police. <laughs> it's like, even though you now have this metropolitan city that like 
you want to control the people like they won't have cops but not because they don't want cops but because they don't want to be french Mm -hmm. but so it happens really a lot later and before that the investigation and prosecution of crimes was really private um and so there was this idea that that was like ineffective because people didn't want to prosecute because they were like our punishments are too harsh so again rather than like lowering the punishment or like maybe making prison not as terrible they were like we need to have a professional class of people who will do this for us because we can't trust like the populace to to dole out justice in the same way because they they keep saying they're the deterrent is not to the people committing the crime it's, it becomes a deterrent to the people who are prosecuting the crimes so that leads to the the metropolitan police so just but that that, that part is accurate it's i feel like this is the first book that we have the first book that we the only book that we've talked about that would really have that sort of professional class like backing the the Newgate. But I mean, Newgate, this is set in 1855. Newgate is not really going to be a place for an incarceration really past the 1860s, even though it doesn't close until 1902, because other prisons are built. It just becomes, it's so old. It was built originally in the 12th century and had been mostly, all the renovations to it really had been surface level. Um, It burned down at one point, right? Yeah, it actually burned down twice. Yeah, oh, okay. so it really just wasn't what, and so it becomes basically closer to what we would consider like a jail now, mm-hmm. where like a, you consider like the difference between jail and prison, where jail is like temporary housing before trial, because it was so close to the Old Bailey, which is the big court in London. Mm-hmm. Um, after around the 1860s, it really just was like you're sitting here waiting for your trial, and if you then you become incarcerated, you would go to another prison that had like single selling and was cleaner and was generally, I, m- I imagine. Not pleasant, but less disgusting compared to Newgate, which I think just always smelled terrible. That's like the big theme from a lot of the history of this is that Newgate made all of London smell bad. Oh, no. (laughs) Um, So if you listen to this and you want to learn more about the history of Newgate, we'll have a few nonfiction recommendations in our show notes. Thank you so much for listening to Reformed Rakes. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find bonus content on our Patreon at patreon.com slash reformedrakes. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram for show updates. The username for both is at reformedrakes. Thank you again, and we'll see you next time.